I want people to be kinder. I do, to be more generous, to understand that generosity is not just like giving money, but you can be generous in so many different ways. You can give your time. You could just you could just be more patient with other people, have more grace with each other. Um, and I want for folks to see themselves in my story and to see that like, you don't have to be famous to do some great things. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. The inauguration of President Joe Biden generated many memorable images. There was the inauguration of Vice President Kamala Harris, the first woman of color to hold the office. Young poet Amanda Gorman gave a mesmerizing reading of her poem, The Hill We Climb. And Senator Bernie Sanders became an internet icon for his mittens. A photo captured Sanders bundled against the January cold sitting alone on a chair, cross-legged, wearing a Burton ski parka, and looking cozy in a pair of fuzzy wool mittens. The image instantly became a viral meme depicting him on the throne from the Game of Thrones, on Mike Pence's forehead, and sitting in a row of ironworkers high above New York City. This viral sensation led reporters to seek out the mitten maker. They quickly found Jen Ellis, a second-grade teacher at Westford Elementary School. She sewed the mittens for Sanders after he lost the 2016 Democratic nomination to Hillary Clinton. She hoped it would cheer him up. Ellis's sudden fame turned her life upside down. She was flooded with interview requests and thousands of mitten orders that quickly overwhelmed her. She ultimately struck a deal with Darn Tough, which made the Generosity Socks, which sold out in a day and resulted in thousands of meals being donated to the Vermont Food Bank. She partnered with Vermont Teddy Bear, which continues to make the iconic Bernie mittens. Jen Ellis has written a memoir, Bernie's Mitten Maker, which tells a deeper backstory of surviving childhood sexual abuse and how sewing saved her. I asked her what made her decide to share her story now. Well, it was so unbelievable, honestly, when it was happening um, to go from living just a really normal life where I got up every day and went to work, you know, as a teacher, came home and was a mom, wife, you know, like it just it, to go from 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 that to all of a sudden everybody knows who I am and people from all over the world are trying to contact me, to interview me, to set up um businesses with me to ask for my mittens um to buy many many pairs of mittens I mean 22,000 people reached out to me after the inauguration and they didn't want just one pair of mittens they wanted to fill their stores with mittens um and it was it was a really shocking thing and so initially I started writing just to get to sleep at night um and and also to preserve the story because it was I mean, it was so unbelievable. And um, and then one story led to another story. And I started asking myself, how did I get here? You know, what, what were the many, many um, pieces of dominoes that kind of fell to, to create this moment? And, um, and so I went way back into my childhood to where I learned how to sew and why sewing was important to me. Um, and then I, then I was able to sort of see a pattern in my life that I was turning to sewing 
to heal, you know, to, you know, in times when, um, when I felt alone or sad, you know, I, I talk about this quilt that I made right after September 11th, when I was, um, stuck in North Carolina, um, and I was able to finish this beautiful quilt that was a turned into a family heirloom. Um, and also during the pandemic, I sewed a quilt out of my wedding dress, you know, and so I think that what I was able to see was that that quilting and crafting was a pattern for me. And it was sort of like my creative outlet and all of that made for a really interesting story. And so I and so I I wrote it and I told the story and I was really honest in the book about a lot of things that I think people would be surprised about, you know, particularly around Internet fame. And, yeah. and I think a lot of people think that that's so glorious, so glorious. But um kind of wasn't it was it was kind of scary i want to go back to that inauguration day of 2021 um and sort of set the context for this you write in your book uh, never had i seen such bitter polarization in my community you live in essex vermont what was going on that made you feel that way well i mean it was it was, you know, Trump had lost the president, the presidential election. And um, just before, you know, a couple weeks before that was the uh, attack on the Capitol. And when I say community, I use that term loosely because I feel like in my very small community where I surround myself with a lot of like-minded people, there wasn't as much bitter polar polarization, but in the broader community of the of the world, of the country, of the state, even, you know, you had people who were pro-Trump and people who were pro-Biden and people who were pro-nobody. And it was just very bitter. And there was also the pandemic. So if you showed up at the grocery store and you, you weren't wearing a mask, you know, everybody had opinions about mask wearing, whether you should be wearing masks in public, whether you should be attending events, you know, and, and folks were, um, you know, losing their inhibition as far as expressing their opinions about other people's mask wearing habits, other people's political opinions, you know, like we've, we just seem to have lost all sense of the fact that we are actually in this together. Um, and I, I felt like people's behavior at that time, and to some degree still, was was really deteriorating you were um, a second grade teacher did you see it yep. in your own school in your own classroom i did yeah um i i've you know kids repeat everything you say at home they come to school and they they don't know what they're talking about little kids they really don't but you hear um you know kids talking about how um, how bad vaccines are for you and um, how, you know, they'll, they'll even enter like abortion debates without any facts. They'll be like, you know, sometimes people kill their babies. You know, they'll say terrible things um, that they, you know, they're overhearing these things at home and they, and they bring them into school and they're out of context. Um, and a lot of the conversations you can sort of, give a few facts but you can all but sometimes you you know they're not appropriate conversations for second graders sometimes and so 
um, yeah, I did see it at school. I saw it sometimes in parent teacher conferences, um, you know, ongoing throughout my career, there was the whole debate about, um, about gun control and about school shootings. And, you know, at least twice I had parents suggest that I carry a gun in my classroom. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. That rhetoric really started after Sandy Hook, which was so scary. Um, and so close, relatively Connecticut to Vermont, so close. And, but it continued through through my tenure as a teacher. Mm -hmm. It was always a threat that that something could happen like that. And the more it happened in other schools across the country, the more unsafe it felt to just be in a school, you know, that, that schools were being these, they were being targeted and mass shootings were occurring all of the time, like, except during the pandemic. In that time, of course, when people weren't in school, we had a reprieve, a brief reprieve, but it's very scary to be in a, in a classroom and to think, you know, my number one job with these children is to keep them safe. It's not actually to teach them because if, if you can't keep them safe, you can't teach them. Right. So, um, so the number one responsibility of every teacher is to keep the children safe physically, emotionally. Um, and then, you know, and then the number two part is, is, and beyond is teaching them, but well, let's shift gears and go back to the reason you wrote a memoir. How did your mittens end up on Bernie Sanders' hands? Well, I um, I don't know Bernie Sanders, but I knew his daughter-in-law. And she was uh, the director of my daughter's preschool. So I um, I was making mittens for the teachers at the preschool for the holidays. And I made an extra pair for Bernie because I like him and I, I support him. And, um, and at the time he had lost the presidential uh, nomination to Hillary Clinton. This was back in 2016. And, you know, I kind of thought he might be retiring soon. I didn't know, but um, I wondered. And so I thought, you know what, I would just like to give him a shout out for always, you know, always fighting for the rights of people who I care about. So you gave him to his daughter-in-law to give to him? Yep. And she did. And that was that. I kind of forgot about them after that because I give mittens to lots of people. I love giving mittens to people. I, I think it's a very joyful gift. It, you know, the stakes are low. People think of you when when they're walking their dog and they're like, oh, I, I really love these mittens. Um, Tell, talk, and, um, talk about the pattern. His is it's a very distinctive pattern. It's very eye catching. Um, tell us about that. His particular mittens. Yeah, well, the that sweater was one that um, a student's grandmother left on my chair at school. She knew I was repurposing old sweaters, and that sweater was in rough shape. That brown sweater. It had, you know holes from moths and I think there was some mouse poop on it it was not that the parts that I saved from that sweater for Bernie's mittens were literally the best parts of that sweater um and 
yeah, I knew he had a brown coat. So I made him some mittens out of a sweater that had brown in it. Um, and then I, the palm of that sweat, that those mittens was made out of a blue sweater that was an old L.L. Bean sweater. And then the heel, which is the part that kind of goes by the thumb and the bottom of the hand was like a green and white sweater. Now, did you even know if he was wearing them after you gave them to them in 2016? I did because um, Liza, his daughter-in-law, passed along just, you know, thank you for the mittens. He loves them. He is a walker and I am too. So he likes to go on long walks and they're great for walking. And so she told me that he wore them while he was walking. So tell me about January 21st, 2021. You're teaching in your class. When do you first get wind of the, these mittens catching fire a bit? Yeah, so a lot of the first chapter of the book, it, it really talks about this moment where my students were at home that day. It was a remote school day. Um, and uh, I was in the classroom alone because our internet at home was a little spotty. And so um, so it was helpful to me to be at school where I had all of my books and all of my math materials to be teaching online from school. And it was a half day. So I knew I was going to get to go home and watch that inauguration. And I was really excited about it. Um, and my phone just started dinging. And one of my students heard it because it was on my, I think it was in my coat pocket, like on the desk that I was facing. So as the crow flies, it wasn't very far from my computer mic, but for me to get there, I had to kind of walk around the commute computer station to, to get to my phone. Um, and then I checked my text. One of my students said, I think someone's trying to reach you because she could hear the dinging. And um, I, uh, I checked my texts and yeah, there was many new messages. Folks who were watching the inauguration had seen Bernie kind of appear on the scene with his manila envelope and his mittens and was he going to the post office? We don't know. <laughs> you know, people were speculating. And then he sat down, of course, alone because they were socially distanced. And the photographer who captured his picture wasn't even meaning to capture him. He was actually photographing somebody behind him. Um, and then he happened to catch, you know, Bernie sitting there in that iconic pose. So I got my messages, but I, you know, there was nothing I could do. I was like, oh, it must be cold there. So I silenced my phone because I had to teach. And I, you know, teaching is a one, a one lane track. You have to be a hundred percent focused so you can't really do it. So, um, yeah. And then I, and then I looked at the phone later and, and, you know, realized that this had gotten bigger and bigger as I was teaching. And when did you realize that it had gone from people just saying, hey, I think I see your mittens on TV to like, this is a viral phenomenon and memes are being made of this? Um, well, when I got home, my partner was like, oh, my gosh, people are making the funniest memes. And I still I didn't think much of it even then, because this had happened a year before he had gone sort of, you know, locally viral um, you know, when he was on the campaign trail. So I was like, oh, that's funny that that's happening again. Um, 
But I think when Ari Shapiro reached out to me for an interview. This is from, from NPR. Um, yes. And I you was say like, you, you oh, had a wow. crush on him. <laughs> I absolutely did and still do. Um, he's fabulous. And um, yeah, I was like, wow, this is gaining some momentum that because I'd already been locally interviewed. Um, but then, yeah, the next day I woke up and my I mean, I, I can't remember how many emails I had. I recorded it in the book because I, I did a little research on that. But um, like thousands of emails and people wanting interviews. And I was like, wow, my report cards are due on Friday and I have other stuff I need to focus on. And it was very distracting and also uh, it was a little scary. Why was it scary? Because people had my phone number People were trying to call me at school. The only the only public profile I really had was as a school teacher. So um, I think that the scary thing was just being known. You know, like my privacy seemed to be just slipping away. Um, and it did slip away really fast. Um, within days, The Advocate, which is a, a queer magazine, had posted, meet the lesbian school teacher who, or meet the queer school teacher who made Bernie's mittens. And I was like, how do they even know that? Like, what does me being queer have to do with making mittens? And also, why didn't they reach out to me to ask for an interview or a quote or anything? Like, why is this so sensational? Um, and, and you kind of- And I'm totally out, so it didn't matter. But there was right, a part of me you, that was you... like, wow, my- Right. You describe in the book, you felt like, well, they just basically outed me, even though you're out uh -huh. and, and without having asked me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and if they had asked for an interview, I would have outed myself. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm totally out and proud, but it's one thing to be out yourself. And it's another thing to just like somebody making a sensation out of your sexuality. And, and, and they were already making a sensation out of the mittens and the memes and it seemed so quaint that I was this nice school teacher. And like, I was like, how do they even know I'm nice? <laughs> I mean, I am kind of nice, but uh, it just seemed like everybody was making up assumptions. And if I didn't agree to interviews and if I didn't take control of the story, that people were just going to start making stuff up that might not be true. Um, and so... So yeah, so I did say yes to Ari Shapiro and I and I said yes to a few other interviews. Matt Matthew Castle from The Jewish Insider, I've given him a bunch of interviews. He's a wonderful writer. Um and I and I have gotten better at just telling the story myself so that it can be true and right from the source. What are some of the most memorable kind of celebrity snippets? I was on To Tell the Truth the game show um, with Jason Alexander. And um, there were several kind of famous actors and actresses that they put up on a panel to see if I, see if they could tell who the real Bernie's mitten maker was. <laughs> um, they found an old older woman who they told to say that she knit the mittens. Um, and then they found this woman who literally looked like a farmer and she was supposed to be like this woman from Vermont. Um, she was so believable. I mean, even I thought that she was the real mitten maker. <laughs> um, so that was, I met, I met several celebrities through that. Um, Caddy Kay from the BBC. 
I talked to her. You know, I talked to a lot of kind of famous people and had a lot of moments, but my favorite moments were like the smaller moments where I got to talk to Vermonters, you know, like you and, and the people at Darn Tough. I mean, what an amazing crew of people. And um, I got to tour the factories at, at Darn Tough and also at the Vermont Teddy Bear Factory. And I have met so many wonderful people through this experience that aren't famous, but are so wonderful and local. I think that's been like the highlight for me. And you were overwhelmed with requests for mittens that you couldn't possibly fulfill. So these two partnerships, you darn tough made socks that were a fundraiser mm -hmm. and Vermont teddy bear made the mittens. Yeah. Vermont teddy bear is still making the mittens. They created like a, a little sidearm to their business called the Vermont mitten company. Um, they created 10 new jobs, which I'm super proud about. Um, and when I was touring the factory, I I remember asking the woman who was showing me around, like, so were these folks who are making mittens, were they making teddy bears before? And you just kind of moved them over to make mittens. And she said, no, we advertised and hired 10 new people to work here. And most of those jobs went to new Americans, which, I mean, I just, I'm so proud of that because having a job is just like an opening to having independence and um, you know, being able to provide for yourself and your, for your family, it's just such an important thing. Um, and so I, I think that that's one of the outcomes, the lasting outcomes of all of this is that yes, everyone can get the mittens. Um, you can get them at the Vermont teddy bear company and 10 people have jobs that they didn't have before jobs that didn't exist before. And you describe how darn tough made these socks that they called generosity spelled j-e-n like your name i know i and, was really embarrassed about that and they sold like ten thousand in some very short period of time yeah i don't know if they if it was i think it was more like nine thousand which is just a small technicality but like yeah overnight they sold out they sold to every single state um, what I was embarrassed about was the name generosity sock. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, the socks were awesome because people wanted to, they wanted some sort of memorabilia from, from the moment, you know, um, the meme moment, everybody wanted a little piece of it and darn tough was able to capitalize on that pretty quickly, but they, they donated a hundred percent of the profits to, um, the Vermont food bank. And so I should, I say capitalize more as in like a, a, that's the wrong term, but they, they seized that moment and did something really extraordinary with it. Do you know how many meals that translated into? I wrote it in the book. It was something like 375,000.5 or 0.75 and I joked with them I'm like I'm really sorry for the person who like got three quarters of a meal at the end <laughs> but um it was a lot of meals and um yeah and I have remained connected with the folks over there in the most wonderful way um I really and they they actually so my book um because I published with a really small publisher has some sponsors and they sponsored the publication of my book um and so did uh the Vermont Teddy Bear Company and Physicians Computer Company you know when you publish with a huge publisher like HarperCollins like 
they they have their own sponsors but with some of the smaller presses you have to you know it's helpful if you have a few folks who are helping you out then you got a call from bernie sanders mm -hmm. tell me about that call what did he say to you it was very brief um i received a text from liza his daughter-in-law and it was like 4 15 on a sunday afternoon and she's like can bernie call you at 4 30 and i was like yes <laughs> But of course, I didn't have much time to think about it. Um, and he was just, you know, he was Bernie in his very Bernie way. He was like, how are things going? Uh, this is very unexpected. How are you handling it? I want to let you know that my campaign has run a sweater fundraiser and we've raised $1.8 million. This is, you know, not public knowledge yet, but we're about to announce it. And I wanted to let you know first. And you know, I was like, all of this attention is very surprising and I don't really know what to do. And he was like, well, let me tell you, I, I don't look at myself. I don't Google myself. And that's one thing you can do. Just don't Google yourself because people are going to say all kinds of things. And, you know, you can't control that. It was good advice. Sewing, quilting, all these things kind of have, uh, they're a part of a long tradition. Uh, a way of storytelling and for you also a way of healing and there's one quilt that has special meaning for you in your life i'd like you to tell the story of that quilt my grandmother's quilt yeah um so i was when i was first starting to quilt back in i was in my early 20s um i went into my mother's basement and found a quilt face that was hand-stitched. And the quilt face is just the top of the quilt, the pretty part. And I asked my mom if I could finish it for her as a project. Um, and partly because I didn't have a lot of money to buy new material. Um, so I wanted to sort of work with what we already had. And my mother, I thought my mother might've made it in Girl Scouts or something, but she said that her grandmother had made it for her mother and, and just never finished it. So I convinced her to let me finish it. And in the, and I took it home with me to North Carolina where I was teaching. And that September uh, was the attack on the World Trade Center. And, um, and I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't certain about flying home for Thanksgiving. So I ended up staying in North Carolina for Thanksgiving. And I spent a week by myself as like a 23 year old, you know, and it was the first holiday I had ever just spent alone but I pulled out that quilt face and I finished it and I decided to give it to my mother for Christmas um, and when I went home for Christmas my grandmother actually had taken a fall and was in a rehab hospital and I, I said you know mom maybe I should give this quilt to grandma instead since it was initially intended to be hers so um, I gave it to her and she said my mother didn't make this quilt she said my grandmother did and so it turned out that this quilt was like passed down through five generations of women in my family. And it was started for my grandmother and um, finished, you know, started when she was, before she was born and finished by, by me, started by her grandmother, finished by her granddaughter. Um, and so, yeah, it became kind of like a, a family heirloom. I'd love for you to read just the brief section where you give this quilt to your grandmother so this is me reflecting on the the quilt and um and the 
sort of role that it played in, in our family. Its creation and completion were like the quilt face and quilt backing of her life. And the stuff in between was a journey of a thousand little stitches of chance and intention intertwined with love. I do believe my grandmother's quilt is the greatest gift I have ever given. It brought such immense joy to the one person I felt understood me better than anyone else. I had no idea when I was carefully stitching it together that it would mean so much to her to have this family heir heirloom restored. It was the first gift I had ever given that had a truly unexpected outcome, but it wasn't the last. That's such a beautiful way of describing what a quilt, what sewing, that it's more than that. You yeah. describe your first experience learning to sew in a classroom with a teacher, Mrs. Collette, um, mm -hmm. back in, I don't know, sixth, seventh grade, something like that. And mm -hmm. you write, it was in her class that I started to develop the skills that I needed to save myself. What are you referring to? How did sewing save you? Um, so yeah, I met Miss Colette when I was in sixth grade. And at that time in my life, I was pretty insecure. Um, I had described earlier in that chapter some abuse that I had experienced at the hands of a perverted old neighbor. And um, I, you know, that, that experience was so traumatizing. And then, you know, right afterwards, I was going through puberty and it was just such a miserable time in my life. And I showed up in Mrs. Collette's class and she was just so confident that everyone had lots of abilities that we had no idea. You know, she, she was like, you can iron your own clothes. You can use a sharp knife safely. You can cook things. You can use a sewing machine. And meanwhile, we were also taking shop classes where we had a, an equally powerful shop teacher who was like, you can use power tools. And I mean, it was a wonderful school environment to be 11 and to have these adults just say, you might not think of yourself as a competent person, but you are no longer a little child and you can learn how to safely do these things and we will teach you. Um, and so I learned how to use all the power tools and, you know, bake muffins and do all of those things. But the thing I loved the most was sewing. I loved everything about it. It just felt so magical and rhythmic, just the little, the way that the the needle went in and out of the fabric, making a little punching sound and, you know, the, the foot pedal, all of it. And then I loved making things. I loved making, you know, I think the first thing we sewed was a pillow. And um, I realized at that moment when we learned how to sew that I could sew anything. I could, I could get a pattern and I could sew a dress if I wanted to, I could hem pants. Um, but mostly what I wanted to do was sew quilts because they just were so beautiful to me. Um, and so, but, you know, I sewed in that class. I, I think I sewed one dress with my mother and then, you know, I got involved in other things in school, sports and musicals and things like that. And I put the sewing down for a long time until I was, um, until I was, in college and I came back from college, I'd just come out as a lesbian and was sort of, you know, full of lots of drama. Um, and I, I sewed my first quilt then. 
Um, but Mrs. Collette had given us such a gift that, that I remembered how to sew. My mother had given me a sewing machine when I was 12 as like a Christmas gift or a birthday gift or something. And, um, I was able to pull that sewing machine out and, and sew a quilt and it was so joyful. You describe in your book how following the abuse that you suffered, you said at that time you made two promises. You would never go back to the house of this abuser again and you would never tell anyone what happened. And you write, mm -hmm. I kept both of those promises for a very long time. Why did you decide to break that silence in your book? Well, you know, it was, it was really hard doing that. Actually. I, I wrote that chapter, um, because some friends encouraged me to, um, and I, I think that those friends, one of them is a memoirist herself. And she was like, so why did you start sewing? Like, wh where did this story begin? And I was like, you know, funny thing, I, I started sewing in when I was in sixth grade and I ended up telling her that story. And she's like, why isn't that story in the book? And I was like, well, I mean, I would have to like really be confident that I could put that out there and that, it, you know, it wouldn't come back to haunt me in ways that I wouldn't be ready for or didn't want. And she was like, well, you should just write it. And if, and if it doesn't come out the way you want it to, just don't put it in the book. You know, everybody can have a crappy first draft. That's what Anne Lamont says. So I wrote it. And, and then I put the book down for almost a year because I think it just having it in the book was so intimidating to me because it really meant that I had to be prepared to have conversations like this about it. Um, and I was, I was constantly asking myself, like, am I really ready for that? Am I ready to have a casual conversation about this terrible thing? Like really the most awful thing that has ever happened to me. And I decided that, yeah, I am. And, and I invite those conversations because um, the longer women, and I, this happens to, to men too, but the longer people remain silent about this, the more it is able to spread as an epidemic. And, and it is an epidemic. It's something that happens to so many people. And, um, and, and it's important to break the silence. And so I, when I returned to the book after almost a year of putting it down, um, at the time I had been working with an agent and he wasn't able to place the book with a big publisher. So um, we parted ways amicably and I took the book and reworked it to be a story more of empowerment. It was more the story that I wanted to tell. Um, and I pitched the book independently to Green Writers Press in Brattleboro. Um, and I think that that whole process was very, it was like reclaiming something. It was like, not only am I going to put this story in there, but I'm going to put some other stories in there too. And, and, you know, the world might've learned about me because of some mittens I made, but like everybody, there's a whole intricate backstory um, that people don't know that is interesting and that, and that has a theme of empowerment and generosity and kindness. And it has a path in the end to joy. Well, I applaud you for having the courage to put that story in there. Um, and it takes courage. And I agree with everything you're saying that it's only when these stories, when a light shines, that 
Um, have you gotten feedback from others? Has there been any response to that aspect of your story? There has been, yeah. Um, it is a piece that a lot of people gravitate towards. Um, and and it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, there is there's one person who came up to me um, pretty early on. She was part of my launch team and she just said, what happened to you is similar to what happened to me. And, um, you know, and we decided we would go out for coffee and talk about it sometime. And um, and another friend of mine said, if you agree to go to coffee with every person who comes up to you and says that that happened to them, you're going to be having a lot of coffee. And I was like, well, I don't mind. I like coffee. But what what like the underlying message there is that this is so common. Um, and most people have been pretty sensitive about it. There there was one review that kind of went through that that I didn't think handled it as sensitively as it could have been handled. Um, but one of the pieces that I've had to reckon with is that I can write about it and tell it from my perspective and, and other people are going to enter the story in different ways and, and perceive it in different ways and tell it from their perspective. And so that one review that I felt was, you know, a little insensitive actually ended up prompting, um, Howard Dean to email me and say, I can't wait to read your book. You know, this sounds like a great, it sounds like it's going to be a great book. Hmm. Um, so you never know. I do think that it's important for people to know that, that they don't already know the whole story of the mittens. You know, I think that that's one of the dangers of writing a story like this is people are like, well, you've given a lot of interviews. Everybody already knows the story. And it's like, well, you know, the story that the, you know, the media told, I answered all the questions they asked, but this is so much more than just a story about mittens. You write, I mean, the, the arc of your story takes you to um, ending your teaching career. You were a teacher for 17 years, I believe. Yeah. And you mm -hmm. write that you talk about losing hope as a teacher, and that's what led you yeah. to leave. What, why did you lose hope? You know, I, I felt during the pandemic that we had an awesome opportunity to shake things up in education, to change the things that weren't working. And when we returned after uh, the quarantine, for a little while, that was the narrative. Yeah, like we're, we can try new things, we can do this better. But after you know a year or so, it, it just felt like we were being herded back into the same pattern of doing exactly what we had done before, which wasn't really working for kids. And um, the kids came back from the quarantine with more social needs and emotional needs and academic needs than they had ever had before. But we had less resources because people were fleeing education. Nobody wanted to, I mean, we had vacancies for the whole year after the pandemic. And I don't know how things are going now, but um, working in education is really hard. And um, understaffed in education is even worse. And you begin to see day after day how like you personally can't meet all the needs of your students. And it's possible that their needs aren't gonna get met. And that's frustrating. It was very frustrating. And I, um, and yeah, I did start to lose hope. And I always told myself like, 
if I become a teacher who starts really not wanting to be at work every day, that's when I need to go because um, the kids deserve someone who has hope and who, who wants to be invested every single day. And um, another thing that caused me to lose hope was I had created this beautiful outdoor classroom during the pandemic. But because the needs of the students were so high, I had to give that up and, and teach inside because, uh, because the kids had needs that were, their, their needs were being met inside and I couldn't convince everybody to come outside with me. So that was hard, it was hard to give that up. And I will also say, and I will not stop saying this, that the whole thing with the pension, where the um, they tried to, and, and they did succeed in making teachers, you know, they threatened to take away the pension and then they wanted teachers to pay more into the pension. But the reason there was a pension shortfall is because um, at the state level, they underfunded the, the pension not the teachers, but they were asking the teachers to make up the difference. We always paid what we were supposed to pay because it was deducted from our salaries. So to ask teachers to make up for a shortfall that came at the state level was so unjust. And in the end, teachers are paying more. And it just became clear too that the pension wasn't a promise. Every 10 years or so, they're gonna make us renegotiate this. Um, and it felt so disrespectful. Hmm. So there was that too. You talk about the experience of your viral fame as, you know, it was kind of traumatic for you. You talked about you had lost my time, my privacy, my anonymity, and the ability to ever sit at a craft fair again and sell my sweet mittens to my community. How do you feel about that now? It's a loss, but I, I feel that you know, now I have a book and I can sit at a craft fair and sell my my book, my sweet book to my community. Um, and what I did last year was I invited Vermont Teddy Bear to go to the craft fairs with me and, and to sell the mittens because they're still making mittens out of repurposed wool sweaters and they're handmade here in Vermont. So they are, you know, it's, it's now a bigger production, but it was wonderful to be back at those craft fairs and to be talking to people in my community. Um, and I was also selling pre-orders for my book, but this next year I'll be back at the craft fairs selling my book with the Vermont Teddy Bear Company um, representatives. And, you know, it will, it will come full circle, but yeah, I never will just be sitting there with my mittens and, you know, a cup of tea Again, it's more than that now. Does your experience kind of make you feel differently or have some empathy for people who are famous? Do you think differently about them now? Um, yes. I mean, I have empathy for anyone who's struggling. Um, I mean, I think if you want to be famous and you get famous, um, and you're happy being famous. There's no reason to feel empathy for someone like that. But if you get if you get um, famous by mistake, then yeah, I do have empathy for folks like that. And and I did. There is a part of the book. I'm not sure if you got into this part yet, where um, I fly out to Los Angeles and I'm on a, a game show and I meet a lot of famous people and 
my perception of them is that they seem kind of unhappy. And I really couldn't wait to get back to Vermont. Um, so yeah, I, I don't I don't have a desire to be famous. And I don't, I never, I never felt like that was something that was um I don't know, it just didn't, it wasn't something I wanted for myself. Um, so if you're getting famous and you don't want to be famous, yeah, I do have empathy for you. It's kind of stinky. Well, I think about that, you know, you, you, you see the, whoever the latest child star is, you know, uh, and we've seen so many of these kids mm -hmm. who were famous at a young age who really mm -hmm. struggle. And, um, every time I see a new one, I think, oh no. I'm worried about that kid. Um, mm -hmm. You, the purpose of your book, as you say, is that it's more about more than the mittens. What do you want people to come away from your story with? I want people to be kinder. I do to be more generous, to understand that generosity is not just like giving money, but you can be generous in so many different ways. You can give your time. You could just you could just be more patient with other people, have more grace with each other. Um, and I want for folks to see themselves in my story and to see that like you can be a totally um, you don't have to be famous to do some great things, you know. And when when this happened to me, I did realize that it was an opportunity that I could use this fame and this notoriety to do something good. And here we were in, in the midst of the pandemic and there were people struggling with food insecurity and housing insecurity. And, you know, I could use this moment of fame to help nonprofits raise money to, um, you know, to just to be a better neighbor, you know, be a better citizen. I could do something good with it and not capitalize on it in a greedy way. Because hadn't we already seen enough greed in our country at that moment, from the hoarding of toilet paper to the refusing to give up an election that you lost, you know, like, there was just a lot of greed and, and self-centeredness. And so, um, yeah, I want to tell people that you can have a, you can have really crappy things happen to you and still emerge as a kind person who wants to make the world a better place. What's next for you, Jen? Well, I've just finished my first year um, in grad school at the University of Vermont in the counseling program. So I'm pursuing a career as a therapist, but I've decided to write a second book. Um, it turns out I really like writing. And, I, and now that I know how to write a book and what it takes, I um, am going to write a fiction book next year. And so I'll, I've paused my... Um, my graduate school plans for a year in order to write a fiction book. Um, but I do hope to finish grad school and become a therapist in the end. And what made you decide to become a therapist? Has that been a long held dream of yours? You know, I think I was ready for a second career and I was kind of waiting for an idea of something that I might like to do. And this this internet fame situation, like I mentioned earlier, it I really ended up having a lot of conversations with individual people. And I love 
talking with individual people and getting to know who they are and why they are the way they are. And, um, and so it seemed like, you know, if that's what I really want to do, instead of being in front of a whole classroom of people, but just be with one or two people at a time and try and help them figure out how to live their lives in a better way. Um, if I can do that by being a therapist, that's what I want to do. And I've been helped by some wonderful therapists. So I, I've been on the receiving end of that and I wanted to learn how to do that. And it's actually, there's a lot to it. <laughs> After a year of graduate school, I can say that therapists, um, you know, to be a good therapist is such a gift and you have to work at it. It's like being a good teacher. Jen Ellis, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me, David. It was really nice to talk to you. Jen Ellis is the author of a new memoir, Bernie's Bitten Maker. <laughs>